Could you better? It's my first week back. Good morning. morning. All right. Hey, glad you're all here. Let's grab our Bibles and uh, turn to uh, the middle of our Bible, the book of Psalms. Uh, Specifically, we'll be taking a look at Psalm chapter 16, Psalm 16 this morning. And um, I'm going to invite you to stand with me if you're able as we're going to read God's Word together. So would you do that with me now? We're going to read the Scripture together. If you're able, please stand. Psalm 16. I want to thank you all for a wonderful sabbatical that I've enjoyed. Uh, I've produced a letter via email. They're also back there at the back if you didn't get that. Um, updating you on uh, what God did and what we did during the sabbatical time. Needless to say, it was uh, refreshing and encouraging, and uh, I'm rearing to go. I was talking with a church member just last night, and he was expressing to me his uh, slight concern that I might go very long because it's been four months since I've been in the pulpit. And I, and I reassured him that I would only go one hour for every month that I was out. So just hang tight, you know, we'll grab lunch. No. Psalm 16, let's read this together. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells securely. For you will not abandon my, sh- my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And this is a reading of God's Holy Word. Would you pray with me as we jump in? Our Heavenly Father, it is a privilege for us to come to you in prayer that we who are in Christ are adopted as sons and daughters and called your children, and you have given us your Holy Spirit by which we cry out to you, Abba, Father, and it is a privilege for us to do that. Lord, it's a privilege also for us to open your Holy Word and to read it and to ponder it and to preach it and then to seek to allow your word to transform our lives. Lord, we thank you, as David thanked you in this psalm, that you are so, so good to us, that you are altogether satisfying, that you are our greatest good, that you are our counselor, that you are our refuge. And Lord, that at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And you make known to us the path of life. And so we ask now that you would, through your spirit, illuminate your word and change us and glorify yourself. We ask it in the powerful name of Jesus. And all of God's people said, Amen. Why don't you take a seat? And you can keep your Bible open to Psalm 16. One of the things that I did during my sabbatical was I did a lot of reading. 
and I did a lot of reading of the scriptures. And what I tried to do was to read and to meditate on a psalm every day. Now, I didn't make it uh, every day. I think I got about, oh, about halfway through the psalms. Um, but of all the psalms that I meditated on and enjoyed, uh, Psalm 16 really stood out to me. And so my first Sunday back, I wanted to preach a psalm of sabbatical from Psalm 16. Well, the year was 1965, and the song, you may be familiar with it, was written by an English rock band. You may have heard of this little sort of not very well-known group called the Rolling Stones. Uh, The song is entitled in a rather grammatically torturous yet memorable way, I Can't Get No, what? Satisfaction. Can't Get No Satisfaction. Well, the song in the States was a hit, giving the Rolling Stones their very first number one single in the United States. And, of course, the song grew in its popularity, so much so that the Rolling Stones magazine, Shocker of Shockers, named I Can't Get No Satisfaction the number two song of all time. That's debatable. Turns out that when you actually think about the lyrics to this song, I Can't get no satisfaction, turns out that the Stones couldn't get any satisfaction because they were looking for satisfaction in all the wrong places. Friends, some 3,000 years before the Rolling Stones, some 3,000 years before the electric guitar, there was another musician, and this musician uh, played on what is essentially the equivalent of the modern guitar, and he would write a song He would write a a song that we know as Psalm 16 with really quite the opposite message. The Rolling Stones proclaim, I can't get no satisfaction. But King David might have entitled Psalm 16 something like, I can get some satisfaction. As throughout the psalm, he unashamedly speaks of his passion and his satisfaction for God and God alone. A quick reading of the psalm reveals this. For instance, in verse 2, David says, I have no good apart from you. In verse 5, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. Verse 11, David proclaims, God, in your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And so finding satisfaction, finding delight as a Christian in God is really no small matter. It's not, a, it's not on the periphery, if you will, of the Christian faith. In fact, the great uh, Presbyterian catechism, the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it begins this way. It asks a question and then it gives the answer. Question number one, what is the chief end of man? In other words, why are we here? Why do we exist, right? What is the chief end of man? And the answer is this, to glorify God and, and if you know it, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That is, what God gets out of the deal, if you will, is glory. We exist for His glory. 
But what we get out of the deal, if you will, is what? It's joy. It's satisfaction. It's to enjoy God himself forever. Now, you may be familiar with a a pastor author by the name of John Piper. John Piper sort of tweaks the Westminster Shorter Catechism uh, to say this. He says, well, I think this is more accurate. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. In other words, we most glorify God when we what? When we enjoy him. He says it this way, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And I think that Psalm 16 speaks to this reality. And so what I'd like to do up on the screen behind me is to summarize what I think is the gist of Psalm 16. It goes something like this. If God, if God through Christ is your and my five things, reliable refuge, if he is your matchless master, if he is your greatest good, if he is your superior satisfaction, and if he is your constant counselor, then what? If those things are true for me and for you, then he will preserve us in this life and take you into the next. If God through our relationship with Him, through Christ, if He is for us our refuge, our master, our greatest good, if He is our superior satisfaction, if He is our constant counselor, He will preserve us, He will take us through the trials and tribulations of this life, and He will take us into the glories of the next where there is joy and satisfaction in His presence forevermore. So I'd like to walk through Psalm 16, and I'd like for us to see how this little summary statement, I pray, is an accurate reflection of what David says in Psalm 16. Um, as we read through the psalm, the, the structure is very simple. David begins at the, uh, in verse 1 with a petition, with a request. He says, preserve me, God save me, keep me and then what we see basically from uh, the, the rest of verse 1 on through verse 7 is praise. David is going to highlight, in my opinion, five uh, depictions, five descriptions of who God is for him and who God can be for us if we are in Christ. So, so God, I'm in trouble. Save me. Deliver me. And then he's just going to ponder, God, this is who you are for me. In light of this trial, in light of this tribulation, in light of, I would argue, the fact that my very life is in danger. My life is on the line. But God, this is who you are for me. Praise, petition. And then finally, the rest of the psalm we see um, persuasion. That is, David is going to be persuaded. He's going to have confidence that God is going to, to, to answer his request to deliver his life. So let's begin with petition, starting in verse 1. Let's take a look at the word of God. David begins, Preserve me. Preserve me, O God. Why can he ask that of God? Why can he, as a follower of God, ask God to save his life? Well, he shows us in the the very next life. Preserve me, O God, for, here's the reason why, for it's because in you 
I take refuge. And now we don't know at the very beginning of the psalm what the situation is. In fact, some of the psalms tell us the particular circumstances in which it was written. We don't know. As we move throughout the psalm, we find out that David's life is in danger. And so he begins by asking God, Help! God, I'm in trouble. I'm in danger. My life is on the line. Keep me. Save me. Preserve me. And here's the reason why. Because God, I'm running to you. God, you are my refuge. Just ponder that for a moment. He's not trusting in, his, in, in himself. He's not trusting in his armies if he's, if he's king at this point. He's not trusting in his, his uh, military uh, capabilities, which if you know the scriptures, they were pretty impressive, right? No, he's not trusting in those. Who is his refuge? God is his refuge. Like, like a child who's scared runs uh, uh, behind the legs of her dad. That's what David's doing. Like the residents of central Kansas, they see a tornado and they, they run to the shelter, right? They're seeking refuge. Like a, well, like a, a soldier who's retreating and he, he makes his way to the king's castle for safety. That's what God uh, was for David. He says, keep me, preserve me. My life is in trouble. God, you are my refuge. And so the first thing that we see about who God is for David and he can be for us, is that God is for David his reliable refuge. He turns to God first. Next, the, the, the psalm shifts from petition to praise, from uh, dependence to declaration. Not only is, is, is God for David his reliable refuge, but notice in verse 2, God is his matchless master and his greatest good. Take a look at verse 2. I say to Yahweh, I say to the Lord, L-O-R-D, all caps, I say to the Lord, so God, this is what I'm telling you, right? I say to you, you are my Lord. Now David doesn't just lack repetition here, right? These are two different words. David says, I am saying to you, Yahweh, the, the covenant name of the Lord, right? So he's not just calling on any deity. He's calling on the true God, the God of Israel. I'm saying to you, Yahweh, that you are my Lord. Little L, right? Lord, you are my Adonai, which simply means master. He says, Yahweh, you're my master. You are my Lord. You are my sovereign ruler. It's striking to me that in a time of distress, in a time where his very life is in danger, David not only turns to God as his refuge, hey, God, save me, I'm in trouble, but the very God is, who, who is his refuge is also his master. Do you see that? I submit to you. I follow you. You are my boss. And so if God is for us our reliable refuge, if God for us is our matchless master, and then the tail end of verse 2 all the way into verse 4, not only is God his refuge and his, his Lord, his master, but God is for David his greatest good. His greatest good. His highest good. Notice what David says. He says, God, I have no good apart from you. I just want to ponder that. In my sabbatical time, I was meditating on this psalm, and that jumped off the page to me. Maybe because it spoke to me where I was. I had to ask myself, and I'm going to ask you now and later, this question. 
Can we honestly say that? Is God our greatest good? Can we say with David, I have no good apart from you? Now, what does he mean there? Does that mean that like, there's nothing good in his life? Like there's nothing that he can look at in his life and say, that's good, that's good, that's good. Do you think that's what David means? I don't think that's what David means. I think what David means is that God is his highest good, his ultimate good, and that he can only enjoy all the other good gifts, family and food and rest and all sorts of good things that God gives to to him and to us that we can only rightly in a non-idolatrous way, enjoy those good gifts if we enjoy God supremely. God, I have no good apart from you. It reminds me of what Asaph says in Psalm 73. Asaph writes, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Friends, just ponder that a moment. Can we repeat that? Can we say that? There's nothing on this earth that I desire more than you. Pastor and author Sam Storms comments on this verse. He says this. He says, everything without God, that is, having everything, everything without God is pathetically inferior to God, to having God without everything. Or, C.S. Lewis puts it this way, He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God alone. That's what David is saying here. He had God and God alone, and that was sufficient. Before he continues In his praise of who God is, David sort of takes a a bit of a shift. In verses 3 and 4, what David is going to do is he's going to pause. And he's just declared, God, you're my highest good. You're, You're the greatest thing in my life. And the question then I think that he's going to answer is this. How does that affect our relationship with other other people? How does that affect his relationship with other people? In other words, if God is our greatest good, does that affect does that affect how we view other people? Well, well, I think it does. Notice what verse 3 says. In verse 3, we see that because God was David's greatest good, he had a delight in the people of God. Notice verse 3. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. I think the connection is this. David looks at the godly people in Israel, and we can do this as well. If we are followers of Christ, we can look at our fellow believers, those who love God, those who have God as their highest good, and our hearts are inclined towards them. I mean, those are people we are attracted to. Our hearts delight in them. Why is that? It's simply because they treasure God like we do, right? They love God like we do. Well, he speaks to how he has a delight for the saints in the land. Well, what about those in the land that don't delight and don't obey God? Well, he speaks about them in verse 4. In verse 4, because God was David's greatest good, he says that he detests idolatry. Notice verse 4. He says, the sorrows of those who run after another God. 
He's speaking about idolatry here. He's saying for those who don't have God as their greatest good, who don't delight in God, their sorrows will what? It will multiply. Their sorrows shall multiply. He then adds their drink offerings, these idolatrous sacrifices, their drink offerings of blood, I will not pour out, or I won't take their names on my lips. In other words, he says, I delight in the saints. But for those who, who, who run to idols, to, to those who sacrifice to idols, to those who call out to these idol gods, save me, save me. What is the end result of idolatry in their lives and friends in our lives? The multiplication of sorrows. I think pastor and author Tim Keller hits it on the head in his book, Counterfeit Gods, when he says this. He says, if we look to some created thing to give us the meaning, hope, and happiness that only God himself can give, what's the result? It will eventually fail to deliver and break our hearts. Friends, that's a large uh, portion of what I did during the sabbatical. I, I prayed and sought the Lord, and I wanted to know, God, what are the idols in my heart? And there was clarification. Beware when you ask God that question because he might answer in ways that you don't expect. He might reveal things to you that you weren't aware of. But that's grace, right? That is God's grace to us because he's transforming us. He's revealing these idols of our hearts that multiply sorrow that can't satisfy. And there's the connection here, right? Because God was his greatest good. He didn't pursue idols. So why do we pursue idols? Well, we begin to pursue idols in our lives when God is not our greatest good. And so we see in verses 2 through 4 that who is God for David? He's not only his, his, his refuge, his matchless master, his, his greatest good. But as we move on, we see that God for David is his superior satisfaction. Let's take a look at verse 5. David continues, he says, The Lord, again, all caps, Yahweh, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. Here David begins with one of two images. Notice the first image that he introduces in verse 5. It's basically from a dinner table, a banqueting hall. So just imagine this, if you will, for a moment. Uh, let's just say um, you're going to a restaurant, and you enter the restaurant, and uh, they uh, take you to your table, and before you is a, a rather large table with all sorts of delicious food items and drinks. Now, you pick what it is, pizza, steak, whatever you like, right? Just think about it. It's, it's full of delicacies, wonderful things, and your stomach begins to grumble. You have a, a desire for that, and there are all, are all sorts of beverages that can satisfy both the stomach and the palate. And David uses this image. He's, it's like, I'm going to the table, right? There are portions of meat there that look good to him. And there are cups there that look delectable. But he imagines this table, and it's like he's saying, you know what? God, you are my choice portion. You are my cup. God, you can satisfy my soul more than filet mignon and Chateau Margaux. Right? I, I want you more than that. You are better. You are my portion. You are my cup. Better than anything this world can offer. And notice the second image. 
of his superior satisfaction. At the end of verse 5 and end of verse 6, David shifts gears. There's a, a second image. And it's the image from the Old Testament when God was dividing up the promised land to the tribes of Israel. You may remember that, right? Joshua led them in and they're dividing up the land, right? And each of the, the tribes get an inheritance. They get a plot of land uh, by lot, except for one group. You remember that particular tribe that didn't get uh, a land inheritance? Which group was it? It starts with an L, remember? Anybody? The Levites. Yeah, that's right. The Levites, they got no land. They got no inheritance. And why is that? Do you remember what God says to them specifically? You are not going to get an inheritance because what? Because I am your inheritance. It's always struck me. These priests of God that had the privilege of serving in the temple of God, where the glory of God dwelled, God says, you don't need land when you have me, in a sense. And this is the image that David is using. He says, you, God, you hold my lot. The lines, the boundary lines, verse 6, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Let me ask you. You think David is talking about his real estate? You think David is like, man, look at my palace, look at this land, it's great. I don't think that's what he's talking about. No. He's saying, God, like the Levites, you're my portion, you're my inheritance. What you have given me, which is yourself, is a beautiful inheritance. See, for for David, and it can be for us, God can be our superior satisfaction. And so we've seen, if God for us is our reliable refuge, if he's our matchless master, if he's our greatest good and our superior satisfaction, but there's one more, verse 7. David says, God, you are my constant counselor. Verse 7, I bless the Lord. Yahweh, I bless you. Why? I bless you. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. And then I think he explains what he means by that in the next phrase. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I think the, the, the thought is this. Um, God, night after night, I'm in my bed and I'm meditating. I'm pondering who you are and I'm, po- I'm pouring over your word to me. And in doing so, what is God doing for David? He's counseling him. David, this is what you should do. This is what you should not do. This is the way you should go. This is your will, my will for you. And so we see that God is some wonderful things for David. And he can be for us. If, if God is these things for us, then what? Well, we transition to the last portion of the psalm in verse 8. As the the psalm moves from praise uh, to persuasion. As, in, as, is, as is the case in many of the Psalms, there's a shift. Uh, David's uh, confidence builds, right? Because in verse 1, what does he say? Preserve me, keep me, God, answer me, I'm in trouble, right? And then he ponders, he meditates, God, this is who you are for me. And then notice the shift in verse 8 from petition to praise to persuasion. He says, God, I'm, I'm confident you, you will deliver me. Notice verse 8. I have set the Lord... Always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. 
to set the Lord before me. It, it, I think it's his way of saying, God, you're always uh, on my mind. You're, you're always under consideration. You're always there. You're always present. I've, I've set you before me. You're at my right hand. That was a place of honor, a place of power, a place of authority. Remember, the Lord was his master, right? And so God, because you're, you're before me, you're, my right, you're at my right hand, what's the result? What is he confident of? We'll take a look at the end of verse 8. He says, I shall not be shaken. What does that mean? What is he, what is he, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be shaken. Well, I think in verse 9, he tells us what that means. He's confident now that, that he's not gonna be shaken. Well, well, what does it mean? Well, take a look at verse 9. Number one, there is a, a joyful response to his newfound confidence in God's preserving his life in this situation. Verse 9, therefore, it's the result. Therefore, my heart is glad. And my whole being rejoices. In other words, David uh, acts as if, as if God has answered his prayer. God preserved my life. They're going to get me. I'm going to die. I'm not going to be shaken. God, I, I'm not going to be shaken. God, I'm joyful. You've answered my prayer. But then notice what he says at the tail end of verse 9. My flesh also dwells securely. What does that mean? Well, I think he tells us in verse 10. God, I'm confident in you. I'm joyful. I'm not going to be shaken. My flesh, my body, my life, it dwells securely. You're my refuge. My life is going to be secured. Verse 10. For, further explanation. What does it mean? For you, God, will not abandon my soul to Sheol, which is simply the Old Testament place of the dead. When you died, you went to Sheol. For you won't abandon my soul to Sheol, Sheol, or let your Holy One, speaking about himself, or your Holy One, see corruption. Friends, what is David confident that, that God is going to do for him? Save his life. David is confident that God will answer his prayer and save his life. That, that he wouldn't go to the place of the dead. That, his, that, that he, as the chosen king of Israel... Uh, would not see corruption in the grave. At least not then. Not then. Not in that moment. David is fully persuaded. David is fully persuaded, not only, I believe, that God would keep his life, preserve his life in that moment, but I believe as we transition into verse 11, that, that David also had a sense and a confidence that God would take him into the next life, into his very presence, a place of joy and eternal pleasure. Verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In the image in the Hebrew there is that I'm on the path of life. God, you show me the path of life and I'm walking it right now in this life, but it extends beyond this life. It goes into eternity. You, you, you make known to me this path, which is life. And in your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so, I think what David is saying is if God, through Christ, is for us our reliable refuge, if he's our matchless master, if he's our greatest good, if we find superior satisfaction in him, if he's our constant counselor, then he will preserve our life in this life and take us into the next. But just when you think the psalm is done, 
Oh, it's not done. It's not done. Because I think David spoke more than what he understood. I think David spoke specifically in verses 10 and 11, uh, 9 and 10, excuse me, more than what he understood. Because we're going to end this morning as we transition into communion, thinking about how the Lord Jesus Christ fulfills this psalm, Psalm 16. Now, if you're uh, familiar with your New Testament, particularly if you're familiar with the book of Acts, you might have been thinking to yourself, verse 10 sounds rather familiar. Verse 10, like I've heard that somewhere before. And you are right. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, we see Peter preaching this Pentecost sermon, right? And he's declaring the the death and the resurrection of Jesus and that faith uh, in Christ leads to eternal life. And Paul, in Acts chapter 13, both quote this very psalm, Psalm 16, to, to, to support the notion that David actually was predicting, he was prophesying more than he knew that the, the ultimate David, that the ultimate King David would not experience death but would be raised from the dead, that he would die but be raised from the dead. Notice, we'll just read Paul's words. They're worth hearing. Verse 35, Acts chapter 13. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, he's quoting our psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption applying this to Jesus and his resurrection. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. Of course he did. David died. But but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. See, David was merely confident. God, in this moment, you're going to preserve my life. You're going to preserve me. You're going to keep me from death. But with Jesus, we see that God allowed his very son to die on the cross for our sins in our place. But three days later, what happened? He would not allow his Holy One to see decay. He would not abandon his son to Sheol, but would raise him back to life. And so we see in this psalm, well, a picture of the gospel. We are reminded that there was a moment in Jesus' life, you may remember the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is sweating and and bleeding sweat, and he is in utter agony, and he prays to his Father, Father, if there's any other way, right? If there's any other way, if this cup can pass from me, Jesus was requesting the preservation of his life, if there was any other way. But, what did he say? But not my will, but your will be done. And Jesus submitted to the fact, it's astonishing, that when he made a very similar request to what David did here. Preserve me, preserve me, that the Father in his infinite plan would say no. No. And Jesus submitted to that. And what did he do? Well, we remember in communion that his body on the cross was torn for us, that his blood was shed for us. And glory of glories, unlike King David, whose body to this very day is seeing corruption, our Lord Jesus Christ saw no corruption. He rose three days later to offer me and you and anyone who would in repentance and faith turn to him to have salvation and eternal life. And so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to offer a time of reflection. We're going to pray. In fact, I'm going to lead you through some prayer points including some preparation for communion. So this might be slightly different, but we need to ponder these realities for ourselves 
and do some work with the Lord, and then we'll share communion. So would you pray with me, church, as I lead us through a time of meditation and prayer? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this wonderful psalm that is so incredibly challenging. And we know that only if we delight in the ultimate King David, only if we delight in him and trust in him and follow him and are transformed by him, can we uh, have these things that you are for David for us. And so we pray that. I want to begin at the beginning. Friends, if you are here and you have never personally trusted in the greater David and Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that is where... That is where the Christian life begins. It's simply confessing and acknowledging your sin, your rebellion, and your falling short of God's holy standards, believing that he sent his very son, perfect son of God, to live the life required of you and to die the death that you deserved and that he was, as our psalm said, raised from the dead. So friends, you can cry out to him even in this moment and be saved. For those of us here who are Christians, we need to ponder this text a moment. And so, Christian, I want to ask both me and you, is God our reliable refuge? We need to ponder, who is it in moments of danger and trial and suffering? Who do we go to first? Just ponder that. Ask the Lord to reveal that to you. Father, in whatever trouble we find ourselves in, be it our very life or our well-being or our health, our emotional state, whatever hardship we're in, Lord, we ask that you would be the one that we turn to as our refuge. Friend, who who is your matchless master? I mean, in reality, who is our king? Who who is our boss? Who do we submit to? Is it God? Is there anything that we keep off limits from God? Spend a moment and ask God to reveal that to you. Father, we pray that you would be our Adonai, that you would be our master and our Lord if we are in Christ, and that we would know that your will for us is always best. Who is our greatest good? I have no good apart from you, David says. Let's spend a moment. Other things in our lives, most likely good gifts from God, that we're making more than they should, that we're saying to it that you are my greatest good. Would you ask of the Lord to reveal that to you? Father, we repent of these idols that are in our hearts as they are often good gifts from your hand, but they are not as good as you. And so, Lord, help us each and every day as Christians to seek after you and to find you to be our greatest good, our portion and our cup. Let's spend a few moments just praising the Lord that he, if you're in Christ, that he's shown you the path of life and that we can anticipate being with him forever and ever, a place of fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Let's thank him and ask him to to grow our anticipation for eternity with him.
Finally, I'm going to leave you to your own to prepare for communion. If you're a Christian, then we welcome you to the table to remember what Christ has done, to celebrate his work for us on the cross, that God did not abandon his soul to Sheol or allow his Holy One to see decay. After suffering for our sins, he was raised on the third day. We have a station here at the front as normal, and we have a station at the back. And if you'd like to use the station at the front, please proceed through the middle. If you'd like to use the station at the back, use the side aisles and uh, come to the table when you're ready. So I'm going to close us in prayer. The music's going to begin. And uh, we invite you to the table when you're prepared. Father, we just ask that you would be our uh, counselor, that we would seek after your wisdom through your word, and your heart would instruct us in the night. Father, we're grateful that you've made known to us the path of life through faith in your son Jesus. Pray that you would make us sensitive to your spirit, that we might stay on that path. Thank you that life is found in you, and that you can be our greatest good. And we anticipate um, uh, the time when we will be in your presence and find fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. God, even in our difficult circumstances now, we turn to you and we ask that we would find joy that supersedes our circumstances, that we'd find hope that supersedes our circumstances and love that transcends our circumstances. God, we pray, pray to you and we praise you for saving us, for restoring us, and that we can find satisfaction in you, in Jesus' name, and God's people said. Just spend some time praying. Come to the table when you're ready.